Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. From the perspective of Ayn Rand's philosophy, Ayn Rand's philosophy of objectivism uniquely upholds the right to the pursuit of your own happiness. I'm Amy Peikoff, and I am glad to see several of you joining me here live today in the chat room. John Sandbrook says he's here on time for once. Yeah, normally it's a work day when I'm doing this show, right? But now we're everybody's off, so we might get a different... A mix of people listening. Just Jean, hi, pig fan, selfishness. Stephen, how are you all? Good to see you. Of course, some guests there as well. Um, today, it's just a New Year's theme, and in particular, I want to revisit the whole idea behind this show. Many of you know that the blog that I started years ago, Don't Let It Go, is named after an essay by Ayn Rand that same name, Don't Let It Go, and it's in the book Philosophy Who Needs It. The book, excuse me, the essay is centered on the issue of the American sense of life. What is the uniquely American sense of life? What is the implicit philosophy, in effect, that Americans hold? What is the implicit attitude that Americans have about themselves and their place in the world in relation to their fellow man, government, etc.? What is that? And this show in particular focuses on basically how that is doing in the culture, what we can do to help enhance it. And so I want to do a variation on that theme for today. Yeah, Stephen says he's able to tune in live for a change as well. So it's it's kind of cool. Many of you are here. Other people are starting to join in. So welcome to the New Year's Eve, excuse me, the New Year's Day theme, New Year's Eve, Um in any event, go to the blog at don'tletitgo.com. You can check out the program notes for today's show. I intend it to be a little more applied philosophy today and less news, although I do have a number of news stories. I typically get carried away. I go out there and I see all these interesting things and I start adding them to the program notes. So it's a little bit ambitious in that regard. But I also do invite you to call in if you'd like. And I'm completely open to some discussions about any kind of resolutions that you have for the new year, 
techniques that you have for actually implementing resolutions as well. But the things that I'm interested in in terms of resolutions myself are centered on this idea of the American sense of life bringing out explicitly and in action in our own lives these components. So we will talk about that. And uh, you can call me at 760-888-5817. Again, that's area code 760-888-5817. If you're on your computer, you also see the number right there up in the top of your browser. So feel free to call in if you want to discuss as well. But I want to just go ahead and dive in, uh, you know, taking a look at these components of the American sense of life and kind of remind us what all of this is about, you know, what it is in the American culture that has preserved us, that has kept us free of totalitarianism for so long, because this is what, you know, Ayn Rand said, Americans have lacked an explicit philosophy, but what they have had is an implicit philosophy, you know, in the form of this sense of life. And that has carried us to a certain extent. And I I think to some extent it's still continuing to do so. And I've got a little bit of evidence of that in the program notes that we'll talk about in a while. But just as a reminder, all the different elements of it, we're going to run through it here. Uh, First, And what Rand does, by the way, is she says, you can't really explain it totally as an abstraction, but you can talk about different aspects of the sense of life and in particular contrast it with the sense of life of people who live in Europe. That's the place that she was most familiar with by way of contrast. So first question, do you see yourself as an independent entity or do you see yourself as primarily belonging to the state? Uh, Rand writes that, of course, Americans see themselves as independent entities, but Europeans see themselves as primarily belonging to the state. And this is on the bottom of page 207 in the essay in uh, the book Philosophy Who Needs It. Uh, She says, the emotional keynote of most Europeans is the feeling that man belongs to the state as a property to be used and disposed of in compliance with his natural, metaphysically determined fate. A typical European may disapprove of a given state and may rebel, seeking to establish what he regards as a better one, like a slave who might seek a better master to serve. But the idea that he is the sovereign and the government is his servant has no emotional reality in his consciousness. And skipping down a little bit, a typical American, she says, can never fully grasp this type of feeling. An American is an independent entity. The popular expression of protest against being pushed around is emotionally unintelligible to Europeans who believe that to be pushed around is their natural condition. So this is the uh, the first element. Second element is what is your attitude about money earned by personal effort versus so-called old money that just kind of inherited through generations and probably in the earlier generations was taken by force of some kind, government force perhaps. Uh, Here in America, money earned by personal effort has traditionally been worthy of respect. One person's money is good as the other's. Whereas in Europe, if you earned money by personal effort, that's deemed to be vulgar and disreputable. Only old money, inherited money, is respectful. 
uh, to the European traditionally. Americans, we admire achievement versus in Europe, they regard it with cynical suspicion. They regard it with envy. In America, we regard our public figures and our politicians as equals. We might use, for instance, their initials to refer to them, JFK, etc., and do this sort of affectionately, not with any sort of disdain or contempt or everything. You know, it's just we, we see them as equals to us. It's just they've accomplished certain things. They're living a certain kind of life. In Europe, there are titles, like in Germany, you might call somebody Air Doctor Doctor. In England, it's common to um, not really regard somebody as, as having fully accomplished a lot in his life unless he's made a knight. You know, there's some sort of official title. And then these public figures become almost, you know, otherworldly, in, in, you know, with respect to us, certainly not our equals. But that's not the way it is in the United States. In the United States, public figures and politicians are regarded as equals, uh, you know, almost maybe too much if you look at the supermarket tabloids. Now, what about initiative? Rand writes that Americans typically take initiative when they see a problem and they see their ability to solve it, they go ahead and step in and do so, versus in Europe, there's more of a bureaucratic mentality and obedience is the overarching attitude there. Um, this is a story she relates from an American economist. He was sent to England, she writes, by an American industrial concern to investigate its European branch. In spite of the latest equipment and techniques, the productivity of the branch in England kept lagging far behind that of the parent factory in the U.S. He found the cause, a rigidly circumscribed mentality, a kind of psychological caste system on all the echelons of British labor and management. As he explained it, in America, if a machine breaks down, a worker volunteers to fix it and usually does. In England, work stops and people wait for the appropriate department to summon the appropriate engineer. It is not a matter of laziness, but of a profoundly ingrained feeling that one must keep one's place, do one's prescribed duty, and never venture beyond it. It does not occur to the British worker that he's free to assume responsibility for anything beyond the limits of his particular job. Initiative is an instinctive, i.e. automatized, American characteristic, in an American consciousness, it occupies the place which, in a European one, is occupied by obedience, end quote. So initiative versus a bureaucratic mentality or obedience. Now, what about the social atmosphere? Rand writes that in America, there is this idea of sort of a classless society, and it doesn't matter where anyone shops. You know, a celebrity, someone who's really rich, perhaps a politician, everybody can go shop at Target. Whereas in Europe, there at least traditionally has been this class consciousness that if you are, you know, someone who's either a celebrity or politician or in some countries royalty, you should not be shopping at the dime store, so to speak, that it would be below you, that it would be embarrassing to do so. Another question she asks. Uh, do you live in emotionally in a world that's made by others? Or do you have the American attitude that was exemplified in The Westerner by Badger Clark? In The Westerner, he wrote, The world began when I was born, and the world is mine to win. 
And that is the uniquely American attitude. Another important component, of course, is happiness. And Rand writes of a visitor from France who just observed, not judging in any way, shape, or form, that Americans, unlike Europeans, were generally happy, with the exception, of course, of the American intellectuals. Amer- you know, intellectuals everywhere were unhappy, uh, she wrote. But, you know, generally this attitude of happiness. Um, and these are all of the components. And what do we have here? We've got some people joining us here in the chat room. Um, John Stewart in the chat room here says that this lack of initiative is the same as a U.S. unionized manufacturing plant. So you do see this sort of bureaucratic, obedient mentality in the plant. Um, But all all of these components, you know, and what Rand, of course, is concerned with in this essay is she's concerned with the fact that while – the American sense of life was saving us from totalitarianism for a long period of time, that it was held quite strongly, even though we lacked an explicit philosophy, that it could do so only so long, and that we needed to make, you know, of course what she thinks is it's the objectivist philosophy, and I agree, uh, the objectivist philosophy is the explicit philosophy behind all of these implicit attitudes that I just went through. Um, that that needs to be made explicit in the American culture. It needs to be explicitly accepted at some point. Otherwise, this implicit set of attitudes and ideas is not going to carry us, is not going to continue to save us. And in fact, we've seen that in our country we've elected Barack Obama twice. So you might really you know, worry about that. And I've talked in the past now, what does it mean that Donald Trump is the leading Republican candidate. I think it means that the American sense of life has been quite mangled to the extent that Donald Trump is having any sort of appeal for Americans. Uh, we'll talk about that a little bit. Um, so, But that's her concern, right? Her concern is that we have this implicit philosophy called a sense of life. It's exhibited by you know us, you know, uh, instantiating, going out there, acting on all of these different attitudes and that the race is to make all of the ideas behind that explicit before it's too late. Because if you don't, you cannot defend simply on a set of implicitly held ideas against a Bernie Sanders, for example, who wants to turn this country into socialist nirvana. So that's the race for her. But I kind of want to turn this on its head a little bit today because, you know, Rand writes, and this is, I believe, on page 210 or so, but she says, a sense of life is not a substitute for explicit knowledge. And that's really the theme of, of this essay, that you've got to bring in the explicit knowledge, otherwise you're not going to be able to stave off uh, all the bad ideas that are coming to try to bring totalitarianism to our country. But I want to emphasize the fact that neither is the converse true, right? If you have explicit knowledge, and I go through you, you know, again, I can go through this whole list again right now, and I can ask you, do you agree that all of these are the right attitudes, right? Is it right for you to see yourself as an independent entity versus belonging to the state? Is it right to have respect for money earned by personal effort, to admire achievement, to regard public figures and politicians as equal and not as, you know, some kind of nobility that you can't touch, uh, personal initiative, 
is it right to display that versus obey, have this bureaucratic mentality? Um, do you feel like you're in a class of society? You're not going to be embarrassed if you choose to go shop at Target. You know, all these different things, right? I go through this and, of course, happiness. And as objectivists, right, people who are fans of Ayn Rand or, or see themselves as objectivists, we'll go through and we'll say, yes, 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 okay, I agree with all these. But that could be in the terms of explicit knowledge and not in terms of action in your life, right? What are you doing in your life to foster and kind of develop all of these attitudes in yourself? You have, as I said, you know, as fans of Ayn Rand or objectivists, you have this explicit knowledge. And there's many people who might be listening. You might say, okay, I agree with all those things. I say, yeah, it's a distinctly American attitude. I think all of this is good. But what do you actually do in your life to exhibit all this, to foster, to encourage this sense of life in yourself? And this is the kind of thing that I'm interested in at the beginning of this year. Now, you know, if you think about why is this so important, because, you know, we've got a country to save, um, why do you have a country to save? You have a country to save in order to live your life. And I also submit that if you aren't living your life in a way that exhibits these various aspects of sense of life, you're probably not going to be very effective at saving the country either. Um, and you're not going to enjoy the country that you save as much when you do. So um, that that's sort of the thing that I'm interested in exploring with you guys today. Does it, do you like my angle on this or not? Because each time I have some sort of a, an inspiration that I want to bring you guys and uh, a kind of a little bit of a different angle on some material that you that you know. But, I mean, think about this. You know, what can you do to foster an attitude in yourself of being an independent entity versus belonging to the state? Depending on the field in which you work, you might say, well, not much, right? Because, after all, whenever you look at these indices of economic freedom in the United States, and economic freedom just means how free are you to go out and engage in your productive activity in your career free of government coercion. The United States is constantly dropping on these indices, and, and there's all kinds of horrible regulations. I mean, we've seen the battle this year with Uber and Lyft and uh, those people just trying to go out there and be entrepreneurs and earn a living and the battles that they've had to face. So, you know, you might think, okay, not much, but to the extent that you can, trying to exercise your freedom and being conscious of doing that, or when you are faced with all of this bureaucratic red tape when you're pursuing your career and your dreams, at least exercising judgment and say, I reject this, this is not the proper state of things. You know, keeping that in your mind versus just sort of resigning yourself to the fact that every time you want to, you know, do something new with your business or with your career, you've got to fill out 25 government forms and pay 50 billion fines and everything else. Um, what's your attitude about people who earn money by personal effort versus, you know, the old nobility. I think most people who are listening to this probably have an explicitly good attitude about that. And they probably, you know, continue to exhibit that and say good for them. But for example, if I go on uh, Drudge's site, uh, you know, Drudge Report, there are headlines all the time where 
you know, he's talking about either Apple or, you know, some other company, this one, that one, that they're doing things in order to get out of paying taxes, right? And that this is really bad. Now, we all know, if you're listening to this show, you probably agree that taxes confiscated by government force are not a moral thing. Now, we all do it. We all pay them. Ayn Rand paid all of her taxes you know, basically religiously because why? We don't want to go to jail. We're going to work within the system and try to change it. But you certainly, if you think that people are entitled to the money that they've earned by their personal effort, you don't go out there and make a big deal about the fact that people are, you know, who've gotten a lot of money are doing things in order to try to escape their taxes. You know, first of all, that they've earned it. And second of all, that if they're allowed to keep more of their money, chances are they're going to be investing it in more things to create more money, which means create more wealth and value and jobs and everything else. You're not going to sit there and do this populist garbage, you know, clickbait talking about, oh, this rich person is escaping taxes. How horrible. So um, there is some of that out there. I don't think people or listeners to this show are, you know, resenting when people get out of taxes very much. I think we say, you know, good for them. That's awesome. It's like they got out of some sort of prison. Um, and, and we know that these productive people are going to reinvest that in a better way. But there is a lot of that out there. I mean, one example was Zuckerberg. You know, Zuckerberg put that letter out there when his daughter was born. And he talks about he's going to give this all away. And some cynical people said, well, he's doing it so that he's able to spend all that money in the way that he chooses without all this taxation and regulation and control and stuff and how horrible it is that he would be trying to do this you know so it's that kind of thing that's out there and i think even people who are more conservative not usually libertarian or, or objectivist but they sometimes conservatives like i said like drudge can fall into this you know oh it's so bad that people get out of paying taxes now, what about admiring achievement? Um, there, are, I, of course, I think most objectivists do explicitly admire achievement. But in your personal life, do you spend sort of more time and attention admiring the achievement of others, or would you say criticizing people who maybe are falling short of whatever your expectations or ideals are? Uh, you know, I, I definitely have the attitude, and this is coming from my grandmother too, you know, what you focus your attention on does grow in your life. And I think it is more important to reward the good, to express admiration for the good and for achievement than it is to, you know, go out there and, and, and criticize. So I think that's one thing that we can definitely all do. Sometimes it's definitely easy uh, to criticize when things fall short, but spending more time admiring the good and, and less. Uh, regarding public figures and politicians as equal, I'm, I'm doubting that anybody listening to this show has too much of an issue with that. Um, there might be certain public figures, you know, that we think is they're in a class by their own. It would be difficult to talk to if you met them on the street. I'm thinking Robert Downey Jr. or something, right? Not really. Um, I think I could talk to him as well. How about initiative? Let's see here. Pig fan in the chat room says, I can understand how it can be frustrating to, pe to see people like Zuckerberg who touts redistribution get out of paying taxes. Well, and then you could 
make it explicit. You'd say, okay, well, he says that redistribution is good and that all this taxation is good and that therefore he's being a hypocrite in some way. But there are people who just don't like the fact that he's going to have personal control over how all that wealth is spent. And that's the thing that I'm I'm really talking about there. And again, I, I don't think people who are fans of this show would do that so much, but I have seen that on Drudge and on other conservative websites. They kind of fall into that populist attitude. And uh, obviously I don't think that's, that's very healthy. Um, taking initiative versus having a bureaucratic mentality. I would think that in any profession, organization, if you're not like a solo entrepreneur or, or you know, an entrepreneur in a very small company with just a few people, it could get very tempting to sometimes adopt more of a bureaucratic mentality, sort of a role-playing mentality, and not see the ability to problem-solve when it's out there. So um, obviously that's something everybody could sort of work on. And I have a story uh, apropos of that in in a couple. Uh, Do you see yourself as you'd be embarrassed shopping in certain places if you thought that there was something there worth buying at a deal that you wanted? Um, I mean, it's one thing to say, okay, it's way across town and it's not practical and it's, you know, sort of a cost-benefit analysis, or I don't really know the store, I hardly ever shop there, so it's going to be kind of a hassle. But is is it, you know, do you say, okay, I'm going to be embarrassed, it's below me to shop at certain places? Probably not, uh, you know, a very good attitude. Do you live emotionally in a world made by others? And I think this is interesting in the kind of atmosphere of social media where all the posts by your friends might take a certain tone and might actually kind of suck you into that. There was a study, if you guys recall, that Facebook did, where Facebook consciously curated, you know, they decided they were going to curate the news feeds of some of their users, and they were going to do it in a way that exposed some users to a lot more positive stories in their news feed. You know, again, it's all out of the stuff, you know, your friends that you're following, but Facebook tweaks it so that you're exposed to either more positive stories or you're exposed to more negative stories. And they found that if you were exposed to the more positive stories, that when you posted yourself, you were more likely to display a positive attitude. Ed Powell says, lately I live emotionally in a world made by J.J. Abrams. (laughs) But you chose to live in that world, right? So I like that. Um, but, you know, on Facebook, they cho- they saw that if they're exposed to the positive, they're going to post something more positive. That if they're exposed more to the negative, they're going to be posting things that are more negative. So, you know, some of this, of course, is your individual choice based on what you are exposed to. There's that. But there's also the choice uh, in terms of what you ex- choose to expose yourself to, right? Um, so, for instance, if you happen to have in your Facebook news feed somebody who's a total downer all the time, maybe you'll choose to hide that person's posts or something, you know, and say, okay, I don't want to be exposed to that quite as much. If I want to go see how they're doing, I'm going to go and actually visit their profile and check them out. But, I, you know, this person's just too negative on a daily basis, so I'll go ahead and just kind of take little snippets when I can. Um, you can choose what to expose yourself to because it can be difficult 
if you are surrounded by a bunch of people with a certain attitude to convey a different type of attitude, the one of your choice. Because, of course, what you should, you should be living emotionally in a world that is made by you, not by others. So, like I said, you know, exercising choice in a couple different ways, how you respond or what you choose to expose yourself to when you can. Happiness. What do you do, really, to go out there and pursue your values and be happy? Um, that's a huge topic, you know, but again, how to, happiness is that emotional state that you achieve or that you enjoy because of the achievement of your values. Setting goals, consciously pursuing them, measuring your progress against the goals, and enjoying and celebrating when you have. Um, these are things, of course, that we all, I think any of us who's kind of in the self-improvement mode, you think you can do them a little bit better and enjoy more happiness in the new year. So what I'm sort of calling for people to do is take a look at all of these things. These are all sort of implicit, subconscious attitudes, automatic attitudes that Ayn Rand identified as characteristic of Americans. And the question is, in and, and in, you know, in particular, like I said, in today's world where there are so many pressures that would be bumping up against all of these and sort of luring you into attitudes that are inconsistent with all of these, what are you doing to kind of explicitly and consciously adhere to all of them? Because it's, like I said, it's not enough to just say, oh, I've, you know, I agree with objectivism. Oh, yes, intellectually, check, 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 check. I agree with all these. What can you do in your life to foster all of these subconscious, implicit, automatic attitudes and reactions, you know, to help further automatize them in, in yourself? Because, you know, you can't go around all the time. It's like, oh, I have to have a new dissertation every single time I have to evaluate something in the culture. Uh, what we want to do is kind of consciously foster them. And, you know, how could you do this if there were some of these, you know, as I'm reading these off to you and you're thinking, okay, there's certain ones that I want to work on, you can do Benjamin Franklin style, you know, where you say, okay, uh, certain months or certain weeks or whatever, I'm going to work on this particular thing. And there's other things I'm sure people want to work on in their lives. It's This is New Year's Day. This is the time of resolutions. But you might put some of these on your list and say, okay, I'd sort of like to work on that aspect of my sense of life or, you know, my, my attitude and what can I do? Like I said, happiness is sort of the all-encompassing, the one that's going to result from the achievement of so many of our goals. Now, let's see. Um, another thing that Ed posted here in the chat room, he says, if there's a law saying essentially that the tax rate for government cronies is 15%, but the tax rate for the rest of us is over 30%, then it's natural to be outraged. Yes, not every tax dollar saved is saved by Hank Reardon, of course. And then that just needs to be explicitly identified because, like I said, Ed, some of these headlines have that kind of populist tone where people resent rich. You know, you're, you're kind of, you know, taught to resent the rich or, you know, implicitly that's the attitude that they're getting onto. Uh, Fiona says, I feel better if Zuckerberg wasn't approached by Merkel in requesting him to Facebook uh, police Facebook anti-Islamic rhetoric, yeah, none of like I'm saying, a lot of these people aren't perfect. And again, 
in today's world, there are a lot of pressures that are working against all of this, but explicitly kind of sorting this out in your mind and not letting yourself fall into some of the implicit attitudes that are out there. I think that's that's really the challenge. Uh, so like I said, if any of you want to call in and discuss aspects of this, um, tell me, you know, where you think what you could actually work on this versus not. 760-888-5817 is the number to call. Um, Sean in the chat room says, I resent people getting tax refunds who have paid no taxes. Yeah, I would I would say that that's a pretty fair bet that any of us would do that. But that is not a person who is produced who's paying no taxes. That is a, a person who's... <laughs> John says, I, I guess I should quit resenting and be more positive. You could certainly have that resentment, but then what I think you know you could try to do in your mind is kind of explicitly think of a couple positive things for every time that you have something like that as well, and it can you know kind of tip the attitude one way or the other. Or you could say, okay, well I resent it, but what can I do about it? I can also you know continue to donate to ARI or things like that where you know that this system that's unfairly giving tax refunds to people who have paid no taxes, this system is being fought, and it's being fought competently. So that's kind of my angle for today. Like I said, think on it, and as we're going through the rest of the show and and some of the stories here, feel free to call in. And (laughs) John says, I will do seven Hail Marys. It's not a duty. I'm trying to to be uh, helpful here, hopefully, you know, helping anyone who's listening to this sort of get more out of life. And again, the common goal of saving a country as well is is on the line. I mean, how many of us are going to be happy warriors out there? Because that's what we have to be. War- and, and that's what we want to be, right? We don't want to be bitter warriors want to be more happy warrior attitude and I think some of it is consciously fostering these attitudes these aspects of the uniquely American sense of life in ourselves uh, you know again yes this American sense of life is not enough but also explicit philosophy isn't enough either some people hold that explicitly and then forget all of the awesome enjoyment that can come with it so Let's go over to the program notes at the blog, don'tletitgo.com, and I'm going to start. But feel free. Like I said, you can interrupt the politics, and sometimes the politics is going to be mixed with a a bit of, you know, kind of a, a reference to some of these aspects of the American sense of life. But feel free to call and interrupt me and talk about that issue explicitly. So... um I have one post. It's from Rob Aviera. And Rob, thanks for all of your help in 2015 sending me so many awesome stories. Rob is not live on the show here right now. He's not in the chat room. He said he couldn't make it live today, but he's going to be listening later. So thank you, Rob, for posting and and sharing a lot of great news stories with us this year. Uh, He's got a post on his little – he has a Facebook page now called Rob's News – And he's talking about the fact that the assault on freedom of speech is one of the year's biggest stories, and I agree. He says, attacks are coming not just from college campuses, 
where students and professors are demanding safe spaces and the power to keep journalists off campus by force, but from the government. Attorney General Loretta Lynch has threatened every critic of Islam, and Democrats in Congress are calling for criticism of Islam to be censured. That's an important story, right? Because if you think that criticism of Islam is being censured by Congress, what you have is you have a number of congressmen who are supposed to serve, for example, uh, in oversight roles on the IRS, for example, right? Even though they cannot outlaw criticism of Islam, do you think that they're going to lift a finger to help people who are being persecuted by, for example, the IRS if those people are critics of Islam? I would say no, right? So the fact that they are not able to, because of the First Amendment, actually outlaw criticism of Islam is beside the point when we have so much power of government to make lives of people miserable based on the ideas that they hold or the ideas that they share. We've seen already the IRS go after Tea Party groups, audit them at rates that are higher, make it difficult for them to get tax-exempt status, etc. And so I predict that if this is not stopped, if we don't get a turnaround and get a very different president, I would say Cruz, uh, 2016, that this kind of stuff means that people and groups who criticize Islam can imagine that they're going to have more harassment by IRS and other government bodies on things that are seemingly unrelated to their speech, right? Because they can't outlaw the speech directly. Now, what about... Oh, so let me let me continue here. So they're calling for criticism of Islam to be censured. He says, these violations of the First Amendment, which amount to the unconstitutional establishment of blasphemy law in this country, are being completely ignored by the two organizations that posture as the country's preeminent defenders of freedom of speech and the separation of church and state. And those are Americans United for Separation of Church and State and the ACLU. And I, you know, I still can't get why it is that liberals unite behind Islam because Islam does some of the most illiberal things in the world. Actually, um, if you want a kind of a summary of my view about how ridiculous this is, it's Liberals' Ten Commandments post-9-11. That's one of my most popular blog posts of all time. So it's Liberals, S apostrophe, Ten Commandments post-9-11. And you can see all the ridiculous ways that liberals abandon their traditional tenets in favor of standing behind Islam. And, and of course, I think that's horrible. Uh, VOR in the chat room says they are a designated victim group. I guess so. You know, and, and still deemed to be victimized, even when you uncover some of the sham Islamophobia like happened in Houston in the last week. But, yeah, that, that seems to be what's going on. So, um, freedom of speech this year. Uh, I've got an article from National Review. It's one of these summary pieces. You know, there's a lot of good summary pieces out there, by the way, if you want to have, you know, the year in review kind of stuff. But here's one. The 13 most ridiculously PC moments on college campuses in 2015. It says, warning, this article contains both pronouns and references to maracas. Okay, first, hating, if you hate, pumpkin spice lattes 
then that has been declared to be sexist. Yes, if you say bad things about pumpkin spice lattes, what you're really saying is that girls don't get to have valid emotions because I guess it's only girls who like... I don't like pumpkin spice lattes, by the way. Um, I like the coffee with the butter and that's it. I can't take the sugar in the coffee. Um, But yeah, you're saying that no girl's opinions ever matter if you don't like pumpkin spice lattes. Number two... A university language guide stated that the word American was problematic. And I remember we talked about this bias-free language guide here on the show during this year. American is offensive. Why? Because it, quote, fails to recognize South America and assumes the U.S. is the only country inside these two continents, of course. What it recommends is that you would say resident of the U.S. instead. Um, but if you the the writer here says, it kind of, I kind of feel like if I say I'm proud to be a resident of the U.S., where at least I know I'm free, it just doesn't have the same ring to it. The school did ultimately remove the guide, though, so, right? So that's the new, that's the good news story is that once there was attention called to this bias-free language guide and all the ridiculous stuff on it, it was uh, ultimately removed. But the fact that it ever existed at all was pretty frightening. Uh, Third, a university study declared that we have to accept people who, quote, identify as real vampires. You shouldn't discriminate against them. Number four, the word skinny is deemed to be violent. This was a language awareness campaign at Western University in London. It declared a bunch of words and phrases to be violent, including skinny and also get over it. Oh, and whitewashed. Why? Because it's used to insult those who do not conform to negative stereotypes of a community or culture. Number five. I mean, this is ridiculous. A university declared the phrase politically correct to be politically incorrect. Yes. According to the Just Words campaign at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, PC is offensive. Why? Because it, quote, has become a way to deflect Say people that you know say that people are being too sensitive. End quote. Six. A room full of white people itself was determined to be a so-called microaggression. John in the chat room says, "To achieve respect, I recommend using I am an illegal resident of the United States." <laughs> Yay! There you go. Um, says, according to a report released by the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, a minority student just, quote, walking into or sitting in a room full of white people is itself a microaggression on the part of the white people. So basically, if you don't want to be part of a microaggression, you walk into a room, you look at how many white people are there, and you say, hmm, okay, it looks like there's too many white people here. I better not be in this room because then... If someone who's not white comes in, then I'm part of the problem, right? Seven, a Harvard study declared that microaggressions can make people die sooner. Okay. Now, um, remember what I was saying before about you choose how you react to the things around you and you choose what you expose yourself to. Um, Any of these things that have been called microaggressions over the last year or so are things that you can choose not to expose yourself to through your freedom of association. You remember we had freedom of association in this country? But no, no, it's it's everybody else is supposed to shield you from these. Okay, number eight. Some students were, quote, triggered 
by an anti-microaggressions exhibit. Because apparently it's not just microaggressions that can trigger people. Anti-microaggression efforts can also trigger people. In April, a campus group at Brandeis University apologized after some students complained that they were hurt by its attempt to help make the campus more inclusive. And you can imagine, I mean, you go out there and you say, oh, well, I think it's, you know, horrible that, I mean, the thing that sprung into my mind is there are a number of people who are, of course, concerned about jihad and ISIS and everything out there on Facebook. And they think that they're helping things when they share a really graphic photo or video out there. And a lot of times they do this without any warning. So suddenly you've got in your Facebook feed a picture of, you know, somebody having their head cut off or something. This is not helpful at all. And, and of course, I would say I'd find it offensive. So similarly, you could see, okay, if somebody goes out there on an anti-microaggression campaign in a certain way that it might actually offend people that are otherwise your allies if you don't do it right. But yeah, it just shows how ridiculous this is because none of these microaggressions, I mean, they have to call them microaggressions, right? Because there's no force involved. It's somebody just actually out there, you know, expressing opinions, uh, opinions with which you disagree usually. And somehow you're trying to equate that with force, which is the way that they are trying to get away with it by calling it aggression. Microaggression, just a little bit. No, there's either force, there's not force. Number nine, a student newspaper felt the need to clarify that it was not being transphobic by associating menstruation and tampons with, quote, women. I'm sorry to say this is my alma mater, University of California, Los Angeles, the Daily Bruin student newspaper that I actually wrote some features for way back when, they included a disclaimer on one of its articles explaining that the author was not being transphobic by suggesting that tampons and periods are a women thing. Because after all, quote, not all individuals who menstruate identify as women and that not all individuals who identify as women menstruate, end quote. So even if something is the norm biologically, you have to have disclaimers like this? I don't know. The War on Pronouns 2015 was no doubt a tough year for this part of speech. In October, Kansas University Student Senate voted to totally ban gender-specific pronouns, such as his or her, from its rules and regulations document because they are microaggressions against the students who don't use them. In September, North Carolina State University defended a lecturer's right to dock students' grades for using he or him to refer to both men and women, as well as for using the word mankind instead of humankind. Same month, Scripps College, they say, declared that using the wrong pronoun to refer to someone was institutionalized violence and even gave students the option to request that teachers use no pronouns at all to refer to them because apparently that part of speech in general can be a microaggression. And as I recall, recently in New York City, you can be fined if you refer to someone as being the wrong sex, the one they don't identify with, apparently. So that's another example of this ridiculousness. Um, University of Pittsburgh is, has warned its faculty and professors to be super extra careful about which pronouns they use, even after a student has already told them which ones he or she prefers 
because some students might change genders over time. Stuart in the chat room says, human still has man in it. That's right. What what could you say instead? I don't know. Um, John says, the use of the word aggression within the word microaggression is an implicit microaggression. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Pretty much. Yeah, he, M Y N says Stuart. You could do that. Exactly. Uh, yeah, mankind. Uh, a mankind ban might suggest is a bad year not only for pronouns but also for gender-specific language in general. I mean, by the way, I want to tell you, as a an academic, a professor who has had to grade papers, I am at a total loss as to what to do with subject-verb agreement in papers that I get. All the time now, it's they use the the students use they. They don't use he or she. I mean, I would love it even if the student would just use she as the indefinite pronoun all the time. I don't care. What really bothers me is the lack of subject-verb agreement in terms of the number. So they'll have, you know, basically a, a verb that conveys that it's only a single person, but the student uses the word they, you know, the pronoun they, with, a you know, a verb that is you know, conveying that it's only a single person uh, about whom they're speaking. It, it, it's really, really frustrating. And as a professor now, I feel like I cannot actually downgrade a student about this because it's been so established in the culture that they're just, you know, trying not to make sure that they're committing microaggressions in their papers. They've been told by all of the teachers that they've written for, for, you know, all the past time that they've been in school, that this is perfectly acceptable. I really wish something could be done about this because, um, like I said, the subject-verb agreement, the lack thereof, is very, very frustrating. A yoga class was canceled. Uh, this is number 11. On grounds that yoga, excuse me, yoga is cultural appropriation. This is in Canada. This is not in the United States. So in terms of what the attitude is uh, here in the United States, it's not here yet. But University of Ottawa in Canada abruptly canceled its free yoga classes because they're considered cultural appropriation and yoga is connected to cultural genocide, right? So if you actually take something from another culture and maybe you feel you're improving upon it, you're Americanizing it in certain ways, right? I mean, I like Mexican food, but the Mexican food that I like, a lot of people who are actually from Mexico would say that is not Mexican food. That is kind of California Mexican or Tex-Mex or whatever it is that they say. And they would down their noses at the food that I have, but I really like it. And it's up to me if, you know, if I like it, there's a free market out there. If you like yoga, the Americanized, westernized version of yoga, more power to you. If you want the traditional version of yoga and you think that it is you know, blasphemy of some kind or the equivalent to Americanized or westernized yoga the way it's been done in some places, go ahead and go out there and spread your ideas and try to see who wins. But this idea that you're going to ban it at a university level because it's cultural appropriation. Uh, the war on charity events. In 2015, political correctness was often considered more important than raising money for charitable causes. At Quinnipiac University, a sorority had to cancel a fundraiser for foster children because one student complained that having maracas on the promotional poster was racist. 
at University of Kansas, some social justice activists declared that a sorority hosting a charity event for children with cancer during one of its protests was a microaggression because the activists were more important than was the cancer fundraising. University blamed a student's clear act of terrorism on the patriarchy. University of California Merced hosted a teach-in to explain that a student who went on a stabbing spree did so because of masculinity and not terrorism. That's just too ridiculous. So, um, yeah, the 13 most ridiculous PC moments on college campuses. So this is the kind of environment that our college students this year have been drinking up. But there has been some pushback. Like we said with the University of New Hampshire uh, example, when they had their bias language guide or whatever, there was a lot of media scrutiny and, scrutiny, and that forced them to withdraw it. Uh, another great piece of news on the free speech on campus front comes from Foundation for Individual Rights in Education, and it talks about what has gone on at the university, uh, Clemson University this year. Um, late 2014, there were members of Clemson University's Coalition of Concerned Students, and they wanted to have a bunch of campus protests over allegedly racially insensitive behavior. They had a list of demands that they presented to Clemson to uh, get the administrators to rectify perceived racial inequality on campus. Um, but among the list of demands, which included requests for increased affirmative action, the creation of a multicultural center as a safe space for minority students, and diversity training for staff and freshmen, uh, the first demand stood out to Professor C. Bradley Thompson and for all the wrong reasons. This was the first demand on the student's list of seven demands. So I'm going to quote from it. They say, we want a public commitment from the Clemson University administration to prosecute criminally predatory behaviors and defamatory speech committed by members of the Clemson University community, including but not limited to those facilitated by usage of social media, end quote. Thompson, he's a political science professor. I've had him on this show, by the way, an executive director of the Clemson Institute for Study of Capitalism. He strongly objected to this, and he, uh, you know, he said it's worth noting that this request is technically impossible given that the universities can't legally prosecute crimes. Uh, but nonetheless, it wasn't until January of this year when Thompson heard that 110 faculty had signed on to support the full list of student demands, including the speech provision, that would have serious repercussions for speech and academic freedom. So he decided he would do something about it. What did they do? They decided that they were going um, to themselves Actually, you know, at first, the other group, the 110, they were taking a full-page ad in the student newspaper, and they were going to support the demands of this coalition. So he says, I very quickly wrote a response that would be titled An Open Letter to Clemson Students. With only 24 hours to spare, he got two other faculty members, astronomy and physics professor Bradley Meyer, along with Alan Grubb in the history department, to sign the letter. He says, we didn't have time to get 100 signatures, probably could have. He said, but it also seemed to me that the statement would be more powerful if it was just the three of us. We didn't want it to be about names. He says, we didn't want it to be about who could put the biggest list together. We wanted it to be about the statement. And 
here is the statement, an open letter to Clemson students. He says, we, the undersigned faculty, pledge to all Clemson students, present and future, that we support and will defend your freedom of thought, conscience, inquiry, speech, expression, and communication. It is our moral obligation as faculty to defend our students' basic rights to free speech and expression, whether we support those views or not. We therefore oppose all attempts by Clemson faculty and administrators to silence, suppress, or, quote, prosecute criminally thought and speech deemed vulgar, controversial, unpopular, insensitive, offensive, inappropriate, subversive, or blasphemous. Uh, We regard any effort by Clemson faculty to censor and publish student thought and speech as especially disgraceful. All students everywhere have a right to think, learn, and speak in an environment free of faculty or administrative threats, intimidation, harassment, coercion, and indoctrination. Know this. Clemson students are legally entitled to the full protection of the First Amendment. Any denial of this right is illegal, unconstitutional, and a betrayal of Clemson's commitment to providing its students with a marketplace of ideas. In the name of genuine tolerance and diversity, let there be no thought crimes or thought police at Clemson University. Our campus must be a refuge for free thought and speech, which includes ideas that we do not like or that makes us feel uncomfortable. That's what a true university is and does. And at the end, they say, we pledge that we'll work tirelessly to fight censorship and keep alive the spirit of open-minded inquiry at Clemson University, end quote. Now, how many so-called microaggressions are probably in there, right? So this is the good news, right? that there are people out there in the university environment who are fighting this. Another good example that I remember from this year is uh, UCLA. was uh, Actually, not just UCLA, but the whole UC system was putting out a list of terminology that they were advising faculty throughout the UC system to avoid. And as I recall, Eugene Volokh, of course, a great expert on the First Amendment, was out there explicitly countering this, and um, and and he's been fighting it. Of course, he's a tenured professor at UCLA School of Law, so you know the he, he's not going to to shy away from a battle like this, especially with his expertise in the in the free speech area. But it is you know especially it's especially dangerous that on the college campuses where you know, everyone who are future leaders and professionals and everything else are being trained, that they get to be exposed to a variety of ideas. Other good things along these lines this year, a number of comedians have spoken out about the fact that they have found it impossible to do shows on college campuses because the kids are too easily offended these days. There are a number of people who are pointing out this issue that, and, and, you know, sometimes at, at some universities you've had administrators who have disagreed and taken completely opposite views. So this debate is being had. There are a number of, you know, professors and administrators, so not, not all of them are as eloquent as C. Bradley Thompson, but they are out there fighting this and they realize that you are not supposed to be coddled and, you know, that, that college campuses are places where your views are supposed to be challenged uh, everybody should welcome a challenge to their views, particularly at that stage. You know, your parents brought you up with a number of ideas. You don't know whether they're right or not necessarily. You just kind of absorb them. And what you go through in college often is a whole process of questioning those ideas. And if you decide that you still adhere to them, you're, you've are you reinforced 
the arguments that you have for them, the evidence that you're aware of for those ideas. If you're going to change them, then you'll be improving your life for the better. Fiona in the chat room says, Maddie coddled. Uh, selfishness says, T. Bradley Thompson at work. Yes, he's a powerhouse. A lot of people uh, who are listeners to this show are familiar with Brad Thompson because of his support for the abolitionist movement, the current abolitionist movement, which is to abolish all government involvement in education. And he's done a great job with that. Molly coddled. Yeah, says Tim Pack. Um, so, I mean, that that is the definite good news. And if you remember when we were talking last year, if you were with me last year for the New Year's Eve show, I was talking about, you know, what what is our reason for optimism? I have a different focus for this, you know, this year's show. This year's show I'm focusing on what we can all do to exhibit the American sense of life. Um, a, a crucial issue for the American sense of life, again, you know, do you see yourself as an independent entity? If you believe that you are not entitled to independent thought and free speech, that is one of the most crucial things. You know, if you, so if you feel like you have to go self-censor all the time, you don't see yourself as an independent entity who's entitled to think whatever you think, to express your thought, and then, of course, go out and act on your best judgment. Um, free free speech is, is crucial in that regard. So this is this is a focus. But last year, when we were talking about, you know, what do you have to look forward to in the in the coming year, um, one of the things that I pointed to was even if the kind of general trend is still in a negative direction, and I do think that's going to be the case throughout most of 2016, uh, particularly because we have Barack Obama as president, He's a lame duck, but he's a lame duck that seems to be getting away with a lot more than the typical lame duck president. Um, 2016 could be pretty ugly on some fronts, but the thing to keep in mind is the thing that I pointed out last year, which was, yeah, we're moving in the wrong direction, but I think we're moving in the wrong direction less quickly all the time, and that in some particularly important fronts, battlefronts, so to speak, there is momentum in the opposite direction. And I have seen some good momentum in the opposite direction in the realm of free speech and the debate about free speech on campus in particular. We have seen all different sides of this. I remember there was an Atlantic article, if I recall correctly, talking about how psychologically damaging it is if you coddle you know, college students, that it, it really messes up their psychologies as well. So there's been a vigorous discussion of this, a lot of pushback, and hopefully, you know, we're going to win because the truth, the truth should win out in the end. And the truth is that in order to ruthlessly pursue what is right, you need to be exposed to all the the various, at least reasonable ideas for what there is out there and and decide accordingly. Sorry, I had to take a sip of water. Health-wise, I'm doing pretty well. Some people have been asking. Um, as far as I know, I'm free of infection, and I'm supposed to have a stent removed this coming Wednesday. And I'm looking forward to getting clearance to actually start working out, doing more than just walking, uh, and try to get strong again. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to that. I, I do occasionally still get little viruses here and there, and I think part of it is because um, my immune system has been beaten down by all the antibiotics that I was exposed to this year. So I think even in my voice right now, I've got a little bit of a cold. 
not too bad. Um, the other thing I have to work on personally this year is getting more sleep. I've had a hard time ever since my surgery making sure that I get more sleep for a variety of reasons. But, yeah, that's one of my explicit resolutions. Uh, Fiona says, good to hear. Yeah, health-wise, I think I'm I'm definitely on the mend. And I'm, I'm actually pleasantly surprised because I feared I was going to have a whole lot of infection while I'm waiting for this stent to come out. And it seems only one round of oral antibiotics was required. So uh, big improvement over last time. So, um, you know, Bosch, he's not able to call into the show today. He's busy, but I've put a tweet of his over on don'tletitgo.com. And he's making the point, you know, that it's right. You know, we can hope for a great 2016, but we know that Obama's Cold War in America is going to heat up in his last year and that GOP either won't or can't stop him. There are certain things that Obama's trying to do all by himself, and it seems that the current Republican leadership doesn't do very much to stop him, and I don't know what they're going to do about this latest. Um, But we are. We are going to see Obama try to impose more and more horrible things on us in the coming year. And what we really have to do is keep our eye on the prize. First of all, can we get somebody decent, to me still the choice is Ted Cruz, uh, in to the presidency for 2017, that will at least give us hope. And then on all of the important cultural fronts, and I think this free speech on campus or free speech in general is a tremendously important cultural front, are we seeing some movement in the right direction or at least what I call some acceleration, right? I talked about the distinction between velocity and acceleration. Right now the velocity vector is still going in the wrong direction, particularly under Obama. But in a number of areas, energy freedom, thanks to Alex Epstein, um, and then I think also free speech on campus because of this organization, Freedom Individual Rights and Education, you know, plus everybody else who sympathizes with them, there's been a lot of good movement in the right direction. Free speech also because of Eugene Volokh and some other people who have brought attention to that issue. Um, but yeah, Obama's set to impose new gun control curbs this next week. I've got a link to that story if you want to check it out from the Washington Post. Uh, thanks to Rob Abiera, I've got another one. Why are Senate Republicans giving any more judges to President Obama in his lame duck year? And uh, there's an organization called Get Liberty, and they are calling for, actually it's Americans for Limited Government, the president, Rick Manning, is urging the U.S. Senate not to approve any more federal judges nominated by Barack Obama in his lame duck year. And you might ask, why should they approve any of them? I I would say that whatever the the burden, the caseload burden, they can probably manage it through this year. And, of course, there should be a presumption of not giving him any more appointments given the damage that it has done. Um, Nonetheless, what will we see in the coming year? Will the Senate Republicans heed this? I don't know. The the Senate Republicans, the House leadership under Paul Ryan seems to, uh, you know, kind of bode not very well for us in this coming year. That They're basically giving Obama everything he wants. It's funny, John just put the pressure on because he says, I'm looking forward to the segue into the Santa tracker. Um, what's the relevance of the Santa tracker story? John is wondering here in the chat room. Um, you know, I mean, you know, tying it back into the American sense of life when you're looking at why everyone's giving Obama whatever he wants, there's some sort of deference to him 
by and, and some people are actually starting to wonder whether it is linked to the recent story about all the surveillance of members of Congress that somehow Obama's got something on all these people via NSA that's making them sort of defer to his every wish and whim even giving more surveillance powers via the latest omnibus, et cetera. But I don't know. What we do know is that there is an unusual amount of deference to a president. There has been a reticence of Congress using any of its you know, powers to check and balance what's been going on in the executive. And I don't know if we're going to see anything better with respect to the Senate's authority to either confirm or deny judges or to challenge any of the executive gun control curbs that Obama plans to spring on us in this in this coming week. Um, just too much deference, failure to see Obama as a political equal, as somebody that they're supposed to actually exercise you know control over, that they're supposed to check. Uh, now, Santa Tracker. Right now, Santa's drunk in the Bahamas, says Trevor <laughs> in the chat room. Um, the relevance of the Santa tracker is I saw it. it it's funny. I, I posted it anyway on, on my Facebook just because I thought it was a cute story. But I see this as an example of exhibiting initiative because it says uh, NORAD Santa tracker started with a typo 60 years ago. And this is how it happened, Right. Uh, 60 years ago, a local Sears store in Colorado Springs, I used to live in Colorado Springs, it's gorgeous, uh, they ran a Dial Santa ad. And they say, except the number was a misprint. Instead of listing the number for Sears Santa hotline, it posted the number for the Continental Air Defense Command Center, which is in Colorado Springs. Christmas Eve 1955, Colonel Harry Shroop began receiving calls from kids asking to speak with Santa Claus. He worked at the operations department for the Air Defense Center, now known as NORAD, so the call must have come as a bit of a surprise. But, now what would he do, right? If he just had sort of the bureaucratic, don't step outside your role mentality, you'd say, oh, I'm sorry, this must be some mistake, and you'd just hang up rudely on all these kids, right? It says, instead, the story tells us, instead of telling the kids that they dialed the wrong number, Shroop said that he wasn't Santa Claus, but he could track him on radar, so all night, Shoop and his team fielded calls giving kids details about Santa's location as he and his reindeer flew through the sky to deliver gifts to children. A tradition was born, and NORAD has opened up its phone lines for its annual Santa tracker ever since. Last year, hundreds of volunteers, including many NORAD employees and Michelle Obama, oh God, we have to hear about that, uh, fielded 135,000 calls from 234 countries. That's 40 calls per volunteer per hour. Original call center was set up by AT&T, which had already served as NORAD's telecommunications provider, especially uh, eventually spun off Lucent, et cetera, et cetera. So they talk about that. But um, I see this as an example, again, of, of initiative. Kid calls in. He gets creative. He comes up with a way to make this awesome for everybody. Um, Trevor says, Santa's NSA tracker complex must be huge to create the naughty nice list. Yeah. Um, Santa's blackmail list out there. Yeah. Who knows? But you see what I mean? This is this is awesome the way that this colonel did this. And it is the opposite of that bureaucratic, don't step outside your role mentality. 
by the way, it was that sort of mentality that had me make an early escape out of retail. When I when I left high school, I first went to work right away, and I was working for a Sam Goody's record store, and I was quickly made into a manager. So I was a manager of a store at 19, which could have had me set up for quite a long and successful career in you know probably retail management, administration, and things like that. But at 19, I was so frustrated by the bureaucratic nature of some of you know the things I was being told. I couldn't solve a problem at the individual store level. I had to go up levels in order to solve some of the simplest things where I knew you know I could go ahead and grab some duct tape or whatever. I mean, not literally, but the equivalent and fix whatever it was. And it was this mentality that, no, you're not entitled to step outside your role and solve the problems where they need to be solved using your own judgment that got me out of that and going back to school. And, of course, I never really left school since, so it's uh, it's interesting. But, no, this, this kernel exhibited exactly the opposite view, taking an awesome amount of initiative. Good news from the last year, economic growth has slashed global poverty to historically unprecedented levels. This is evidence, says Rob Aviar. Actually, I didn't give him the, the tagline there, but thanks, Rob, uh, for a uh, the success of capitalism, more evidence for the success of capitalism. This is a Human Progress article. According to the World Bank, for the first time in human history, less than 10% of the world's population will be living in extreme poverty by the end of 2015. So this overall improvement has existed even in a climate that we have seen as being pretty dire economically. Now here is another article that I think is a good example of the persistence of the American sense of life despite it being battered down by Obama. It's a Time.com article. It was shared by Glenn Jameson, so thanks, Glenn says, Obama is the worst president since World War II, according to polls. Of course, it's not time saying no. That would be too much, right? If time is actually saying that Obama is the worst president since World War II, no, it's just a poll that is saying this. But Obama is apparently falling behind even his predecessor, George W. Bush, who everybody loves to hate. It says, more Americans consider Barack Obama to be the worst president since World War II, than they do any other president, according to a new poll. The Quinnipiac poll Wednesday found out that 33% of Americans see Obama as the worst post-war president, while just 8% consider him the best. Another 28% see former President George W. Bush as the worst. Richard Nixon, the only American president ever to resign in disgrace, was picked the worst by 13%. Now, that could be the short memory. Thing. But in terms of actual damage done to the United States, I would say probably Obama because of Obamacare, hands down. Um, George W. Bush is a, is a good close second, though, right? Uh, 45% of Americans think the U.S. would be better off if Mitt Romney had been elected president in 2012. 38% say it would be worse off. I don't think that that says very much. But Ronald Reagan in this poll was the most common answer among those surveyed for the best president since World War II, with 35% choosing the Republican icon. Another 18% chose Bill Clinton. 15% chose John F. Kennedy. 
I don't know why people chose Bill Clinton, but I would say the choice of Ronald Reagan was on sense of life grounds. If you go through all of those aspects that I reviewed at the beginning, I would say Reagan exhibited those attitudes uh, a lot more than any other president in my memory. But the thing that I like about this fact that you know people are saying that Obama is the worst president is that Obama has come in and explicitly expressed what has been the predominant morality that most Americans say that they hold, right, which is the altruist sort of egalitarian ideal. In speech after speech after speech, we've talked about it, Obama has, you know, gone out there and promoted his egalitarian agenda of redistribution and done so explicitly. And if Americans really in their gut felt what they explicitly say they adhere to, they would not think that Obama was worse than George W. Bush. They'd say, look, he's actually implementing the morality that we say that we adhere to. But there's something in Americans that is reacting to Obama and identifying him as the first, you know, the worst post-war president. And I do think it's, you know, some at least mangled sense of this American sense of life that is there rebelling against it. Because George W. Bush, he did a lot of the same things along those lines, but he did not explicitly represent out there that he was in favor of all of this egalitarian redistribution. Um, you know, so so I, I think the difference between the two is Obama explicitly expressing these ideas, Americans rebelling against it with their implicit sense of life, whereas George W. Bush was out there mixed and confused like most Americans are, and you know, whereas a lot of the policies ended up having that effect and made people resent him, um, they rebel when there's explicit expression of those ideas of sacrifice and egalitarianism even more. And I think that that's a, a very good sign. Now, the, the sad part of this is that it's only 33% that see Obama as the worst post-war president. You'd think, okay, at least the second worst would be Carter, right? I don't know. Now people are talking about, oh, I'm part of the education industrial context, according to Trevor here in the chat room. What is a record? I don't know what that, people are asking some different questions. Now I think my chat needs to be refreshed here, and I may have to do that refreshing and see if it's going to work. I hope I don't lose you guys here in the chat. We've only got about 13 minutes left of the show to go, but... I want that participation. Okay. I'm still, I guess it's probably okay, but everything's kind of in gray for me. So if somebody wants to type something in the chat room and test whether I can see it, that would, that would be awesome. So I do think that's good news. American sense of life is somewhat alive and well out there among some people if, if he's winning that poll. Um, you know, some people would say that George W. Bush paved the way for Barack Obama and that made him the worst, or that George W. Bush, he squandered the opportunity that he had to actually do something constructive about 9-11 and that that has resulted in a lot of the problems that we have today. So I can see reasons that you would say he is the worst, but I, I think it's a, a really good sign that they've identified Obama as the worst. How about some good news? <laughs> Test. Yay. Um 
We're going to keep the conspiracy thing going, says Trevor. 4.18 p.m. Eastern Time. Excellent. Okay, thanks, everybody. It is working now. So I've got, it's weird. I've, I'm seeing some stuff in gray and some some stuff in, in black here. And Blog Talk Radio, their customer service is down, they're telling me, uh, for the next couple days or so. So some good news. And there's a couple pieces of good news on the medical front. There's a lot of good news on the medical front lately, though. I saw the other day, and I couldn't find it, an article talking about a new treatment for Alzheimer's that I think promises to eradicate it. But this is an interesting medical advance that comes from Israel. Israel seems to be the home. I mean, I'm actually going to generalize from two examples, though. Uh, Israel seems to be the home of creating tiny stuff that you put in your body that helps you get better. So the example that I remember from years ago is that someone in Israel invented a tiny little camera that you can swallow. And when you swallow it, it goes all through your digestive tract and takes pictures of everything along the way. So that, for example, if you have some kind of weird intestinal bleeding, which is a fairly common thing as as people age, um, that hopefully as this little camera goes through your digestive tract and tumbles all around and everything, it's going to get a picture of where along the tract that you know defect or bleeding is, wherever the injury is. Uh, this is something entirely different. It's called a DNA nanobot. And the DNA nanobot, they say, will target cancer cells in now a first human trial using a terminally ill patient. And the article, if you find it, go to my blog, don'tletitgo.com, for all the links for the stories that I've got here today. But you can actually see a picture of what this little DNA nanobot looks like and how tiny it is. It says the the very mention of nanobots can bring up certain future paranoia in people, you know, undetectable robots under your skin, etc. But there is this tiny robot. It's going to be injected into a human body, and it's going to fight disease. And it's a very real thing. Um, what these do, just to give you the the short story, is these little robots can be targeted to open up when they're exposed to certain types of cancer cells. And when they open up, they release whatever type of medicine it is that's going to target those cells, right? Because the problem with chemotherapy is that the chemotherapy will target, you know, hit all the cells and kill the cells that you want to kill, the cancer cells, but it also does a whole lot of collateral damage. And if you can specifically target the cells, the cancer cells themselves, then you can eliminate a lot of that damage. So this little robot, I think there's seven different types of cancer cells that it's trained to recognize right now. So you can put the medicines in the little robot, and the little robot will open up and release the medicines only when it's in the presence of the correct type of cells, which is an awesome, awesome uh, advance. comes from Israel, right? Just one of the many values that have come, like I said, from Israel in the, the medical research field. And also, you know, it's something that we need the freedom to pursue. We need a free market in order to make it more readily available more quickly for everybody because it it seems like a wonderful advance. Something else that you can check out if you are in the self-improvement mentality, particularly at the beginning of the year. I've been thinking about this myself, right, because I told you that my immune system has been battered by all of the antibiotics that I've taken this year, and I'm trying to rebuild it by, you know, ingesting probiotics and various things. And I hear it takes time for that to happen. 
but USC has put out an article where they, you know, someone there has discovered that fasting will trigger stem cell regeneration of damaged old immune systems and that you can dramatically regenerate your immune system just by fasting. Then the problem is how long you have to fast, right? Because if you're in the paleo sort of sphere, you've heard that intermittent fasting is supposed to be very healthful. And there are a lot of people like me, for example, that routinely, maybe with the exception of having butter in your coffee in the morning, I routinely will not eat for over 12 hours at least. Um, Some people do it even more extremely. There's a number of people who try to confine the hours in which they eat during the day to eight hours. So then they're kind of fasting for 16 hours. Uh, But for me, it's usually about 12 at least. But what this study says is that in order to get the immune regenerative effects that you have to fast for two to four days at a time. And I guess you're doing this a few times over a course of six months. And this will kill the older and damaged immune cells and generate new ones, which to any of us I think is a very attractive thing to do. They think in particular that if you fast and you are a cancer patient who's going to undergo chemotherapy, that you can reduce the toxicity effects of the chemotherapy by fasting like this. So a valuable study. And then all of us have to decide whether we could do this. (laughs) Trevor says it's starting to sound too much like Ramadan. I'm hungry. Excuse me. My voice is going. One second. Yeah, it sounds like I need to regenerate my immune system, right? So I don't have these little voice pops. Um, No, I mean, there's a number of people who fast on on a regular basis. On my Facebook post where I posted this out there, there were people who talked about fasting for much longer periods of time than the two to four days that I'm griping about. I I have not. Oh, VOR says, eat apple wedges for the voice. Okay, I was eating a bunch of pears. I got pears for Christmas yesterday, but apple, I guess, would be a lot better. Um, Yeah, but people routinely fast like this, and they don't see a big problem with it. So I might just be a wimp, and feel free to tell me that I am. Another bit of good news, drivers in rural Oregon are now able to start pumping their own gas. This is a new law that has just gone into effect. Apparently in Oregon, it's been almost sort of a religion that people cannot just go pump their own gas. Here in California, you can just go to any gas station, pump your own gas at all hours of the day. In Oregon, this was never the case, but recently the government finally made a concession Because there are these rural gas stations, they don't get a lot of business, they can't afford to hire the attendants necessary to provide the service at night, 24 hours a day. And, um, you know, Governor Kate, Kate Brown went ahead and signed into law, a law that went into effect today. And it said if there's a a county with a population less than 40,000, then they're making a special concession that people could actually pump their own gas as opposed to being forced to provide employment for people that they wouldn't otherwise want to employ. Um, So imagine you're a business owner and finally you're being given the freedom in Oregon to run your business the way you see fit, to actually allow the customers to pump their own gas. So as I said, the state government in Oregon is just the tiniest 
little bit smaller. It, it's not a concession on principle. It's they're saying, oh, you know, there's this need, and let's go ahead and carve out a little exception over here. Another piece of good news is that some publications are beginning to expose Donald Trump and you know, kind of marshal together great arguments for why conservatives should stop supporting the Donald, as people call him. Thefederalist.com has an article, it's time for conservatives to reject Donald Trump. And it lists a variety of characteristics that he has that you should be alarmed about if you are any sort of a conservative or anti-leftist thinking of potentially supporting or voting for Donald Trump. First of all, he's a health care socialist. He also supports higher taxes. Um, he, you know, says he's for free trade and things like that, but really he's for mercantilism. Uh, and it goes on. So the point is, as he says, the frustration of conservatives towards politicians is understandable and completely warranted. Republicans often get to Washington and they don't do what they say. But right now, we ought to be paying more attention to what Donald Trump is really saying or will rue the day that he's in a position to do anything. It really is scary. You know, there's a lot of people who are on the left and they say they're scared of Donald Trump. But I think Donald Trump is scary for anybody who believes in individual rights, the fact that he's being taken so seriously as, as a candidate. <laughs> Dump Trump, says Stuart in the chat room. One last thing before I go. I can't believe I got through all these. There's a Chrome extension, you know, extension for the Chrome browser that will block out everything related to Donald Trump. So if you use Chrome, go to my blog, don'tletitgo.com, and you can click the link at the bottom of the program notes, and you can get the extension. It'll block out everything related to Donald Trump. Now, I don't know if it's going to be over-inclusive or under-inclusive, but I love the idea, and thanks to Rob Aberia for sending it along. So uh, thank you everyone for being here today. Feel free to continue the discussion over at the blog at don'tletitgo.com or you can find me on social media at Amy Peacock on Twitter. I've got a personal page and also the Don't Let It Go on Her page on Facebook. Thanks to all of you who have sent in year-end donations supporting the show. If you want to continue to support the show, if you haven't yet, obviously it's not tax deductible because I do promote particular candidates, but yeah, go to Don't Let It go.com and you can find the support link in the top right. I really appreciate it right now with all the medical bills and stuff. So thanks everyone. I will talk to you next week at the usual time and have a great new year, everyone. Take care. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.